Amen. So good to be here this morning. So good to be in the new season of our church. But also, I just wanted to let you know where we're headed. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be starting a new series, uh, moving into Easter and in the season of Easter. And uh, I just want to go ahead and kind of tell you what that's going to look like. And so we're going to be looking at the very person of Jesus the last week of his life. Nathan's going to start that next week. And then also we're going to have a um, good Friday service. And so that's going to be at 6 o'clock um, p.m. That's going to be something new I think we've never done before. Um, and then that Saturday we'll have, uh, I think it's called Easter Jam. Yeah, Easter Jam will be that Saturday um, that's going to be happening in the afternoon at 2 o'clock and then Sunday morning will be Resurrection Sunday, a normal time at nine o'clock. And so that's what's coming up. And so the whole idea is this, is that when Jesus really shows up, when he enters the situation, he, there's, a, there's a change. And I think that all of us in this room probably would like to believe that, but this morning we wanna continue to look how Jesus shapes our identity, both collectively as a church, but then also individually. I think that each one of us could be really honest and say, Jesus is a part of my life. But what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at his word and gonna see how when he enters the story, everything changes. And how when we think there's no hope, Jesus is there. When we think there, there is no, no one with you, when you're all alone, or when things are even perfect, when Jesus shows up, he changed the narrative completely. And so this morning, what we wanna do is we wanna open God's word, and we're gonna be in Mark chapter four and chapter five. We're gonna be looking at um, what I believe is a very timely passage for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna be in, in Mark chapter four. And I don't know if y'all remember, this is, first off, the heart of worship, some of y'all in this room probably didn't even know what was going on there, because that was so, that was so a few years ago. But that, man, that, that, that had me right there. That was, I was in college when that came out, and this is a throwback, but it really is centering us on the very idea of Jesus and who he is and that he is the, the, the center point of our lives. 2007, I don't know if y'all remember this, um, Steve Jobs stood up on a stage, y'all remember this, and he introduced what was rumored to be the, new, the, the first iPhone. And as he got up there, he said that there was gonna be three new devices that were gonna be released that day. And he said that there was gonna be a widescreen iPod touch, okay, that's the first thing he said. And then he said there was gonna be a revolutionary mobile phone. And then he said that there was gonna be a breakthrough internet communicator. And so people were like, what is that? What, what are you even talking about? And so he said all things and the first, there's all these claps. And by the time he gets to the third one, people were just like, I don't even know what, that, what he's talking about. And then he kept saying it over and over and over again. And then people started to gather that this was not three products. Really, this was really just one. And he was gonna talk about the iPhone and how it was gonna change everything. And how it was just one thing that had three different parts to it that were revolutionary. And this morning, what we wanna do is we wanna look at this, these three different stories, but I think that there's just one thing that kind of runs throughout it. So a lot of times when we look at God's word, we see that there are, um, many times there's themes. And Mark is gonna be doing that here. He's, it's called a Markian sandwich. That's actually what the theological term is. He is going to sandwich all of these ideas together. And we're gonna be able to see that there is a reason why he collectively put all of these things in, this, in the order that he did. So Mark is here and he gives us stories that I know a lot of us as believers have probably heard before. When Jesus shows up and he, he, he calms the storm. And then when he shows up with the man that had actually a, a demon that was demon possessed 
and then Jairus and his daughter. There's different stories, but thematically, I want to look at it, the idea that it was all one. And I think for where the church is right now, we want us to see that there is a narrative here of who Jesus is and how we can learn to trust him through every season of our life. So if we, want, if we would, just let's go ahead and start. We're going to start in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 35. He says this, he says, the day, that day when evening came, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there was also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it nearly was swamped. Jesus was in the storm, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, do you not care about us as we drown? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Then he said to the disciples, why are you afraid? Why do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So what we're going to do is we're going to be breaking up these three stories. Really, there's four things that happen, but there's three actual stories, and we'll see that in just a second. But we, what we're going to do is we're going to look at them. We're going to talk about each one individually, okay? And so the first thing I want you to know about this particular story is that when we talk about this, this Sea of Galilee, really, it's not a sea, it's a lake. And so it, it's one of those things where a lot of the words in Hebrew, we don't have a lot of, um, you're not going to find that the Hebrews really were big into the water, right? That's why whenever in the Old Testament we have, you know, with, with Jonah, it was big fish. And so here, the idea of the sea was really a lake. And it was really a, about four times the size of a normal lake, but it was just a lake. And it was surrounded by these mountains on either side, and right? And what would happen was is that the, the wind would just rush over, and there, was, uh, there would be these storms that came about rather quickly, I got a chance to go there and study abroad years ago, and when you're there and you can see it, it really makes sense. This is just a lake, and people went out there, and this was their livelihood. This is where they fished. This is where everything happened, but it was also something that was understood that when you went out at night, it was a dangerous thing. When you went out and you thought that you understood what was going to happen, a lot of times you would get caught off guard, and here Jesus is instructing them to go to the other side of the lake. And as the disciples are, are obeying him, we see that it's just a lake and it's just a normal day there. And it's interesting that if, if you really would kind of gather what happened here is that they were not really upset. They were freaking out a little bit, but by the time that, that Jesus calmed the waves, that's when they really started to be terrified, right? And so what does it say? It says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The actual literal translation is, is that they were feared with a great fear. You get the idea that, that, that Jesus is here and because what had just happened had defied all logic and reason, that Jesus showed up on the scene and it's one of those things where you can follow after somebody. They were used to rabbis in this day where you followed after somebody. But this was a different narrative because rabbis and people of, of the faith didn't have the ability to do what Jesus did. 
And so it's literally just like, a, a, I have a, a golden doodle that's, that's pretty big and rambunctious because they all are. I've learned that. It's just they all are. And so whenever you see them, when I, I see her, um, it, it's interesting how I could just say, lay down and she will obey. She's pretty smart or whatever. And it's almost as this Jesus just got up. He's sound asleep and he just woke up and he said, be still. And that was it. And from that moment on, the disciples they didn't know what to do with this. They really didn't. And what you also see is this, that there's more than one boat. Mark is the only example that we have where there's more than one account that this involved several people. It wasn't just the disciples. As we know in the Bible, that there's other people that are kind of surround themselves with Jesus that we don't even know about. So Jesus is here and the narrative changed whenever he spoke these words. Many were affected that day. Many were afraid of the waves and what was about to happen. But you see the very idea of this right here. That Jesus had complete authority. He had complete control of the situation. Let's keep reading. So the next thing that we're going to see is, we're going to see this next shift. So let's just, let's just start in, in chapter 5. And it says, you're going to see that these all involve this lake. The same idea. It says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And, they lived, and he, the man lived in the tombs and that no one could bind him, not anyone, even with a chain. For they had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, or night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, they would cry out and cut himself with stones. Okay, obviously this guy's got some issues. And it's not even that we're dealing with someone maybe that's disturbed, but we can see that there's another force at play here. This is someone that's demon-possessed. And then look what happens when this person ran into Jesus he says, when he saw Jesus at a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, with me Jesus, son of the most high God? In, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to them, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, he replied, for there are many. And then he begged Jesus again and again and not to send them out of the area. And a large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission and the unpure spirits that came out of them into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. Well, that's exciting. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came out to see Jesus, they saw this man who had been possessed by, the, by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and at his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it and told the people of what had happened, and the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well, and the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, who had been demon, uh, the, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him not to, him to go with him. Jesus did not let him 
Because he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done to you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the debacleists how much Jesus had done for them. And the people were amazed. So in this story, I think it's interesting to talk about this demonic world. And we can see that there's a whole other element that's at play here. Both, of the, both stories that we have, they both ended in fear. First off, from the disciples, but then also just from the people. And they didn't know how, what to make of this just because of this man that showed up at the boat. Jesus was obviously superior to all these evil spirits, but it's interesting that he knew his name immediately and that also he equated Jesus with the Old Testament name of God. Just by the glance of who he was, he saw this person and said, you're the, you are, you're the God. You're the, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus was that embodiment of that person. You could see just how interesting the disciples had to feel. Interesting enough, you can also see that they probably, if you want to be really honest, were probably losing their minds about right now. As Jesus started his ministry, things were unraveling rather quickly. And at first, it was just him telling some people a few little occasional you know, healings. But then this, I think this is where the narrative really changed for Jesus. The demon knew Jesus by name. But interesting, Jesus did not know his name. Now, obviously, Jesus did know his name, but he, was, he always asked questions to gather more information so that there could be a teaching point. And he says that he's legion, which is also something of that day with the Romans. There's about 6,000 men. And it was the idea of a whole squadron of people, of fighters. And you can see the very idea that this was a, a large, powerful group of people. Jesus was there. He showed up on the scene. The demons equated Jesus with the Son of God of the Old Testament. And I think that's interesting how even the disciples were still trying to gather what they thought of him. You see, Jesus, the next teaching thing I want you to see is that he had authority over the spiritual world. So first he had authority over nature, but then he has authority over the spiritual world. And you can see that, that Jesus is building this idea of exactly who he is and the very character that he had and the power that he had. And I think all of us, when we read these stories, it's usually segmented. And a lot of times we miss this. We miss this theme that thematically what is going on here. Let's keep reading. Verse 21 says, when Jesus had crossed over the boat, to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. And while he was by the lake, one of, one of them, of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came. And when he, saw, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. He says, my daughter is dying. Please come put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed by and, and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had not been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent a lot of time. Yet, instead of, of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and the crowd and touched the cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she fell at the body, and she was freed from her suffering. Okay, several things going on here. So what we have is we have Jairus where really the whole situation revolved around. But in the meantime, this is just like this action-packed Chuck Norris thing that we're out of left field. We're seeing different elements come to play. So as he's going to do with Jairus, what happens? There is this girl that shows up, Jairus. Jairus is probably standing there like, okay, what is going on? As, as the crowd pressed in, it said, this woman is there. And all she had to do was go and touch Jesus. And she was healed. There's several things that are really at play. First off, she was unclean and she touched him. So obviously there's that. But then also it was uncustomary for a girl to touch a, a, a guy in that manner. And then Jesus did turn around and says, who touched me? And he keeps pressing on this issue. Of course he knew who touched him. But once again, there's a teaching moment at play. Jesus was trying to show people exactly who he was, his character, and that he was good. Let's keep reading. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out of him and he turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see people crowded against you, his disciple answered, and yet you, you can ask, who touched me? Interesting enough, Jesus there is asking the very question that he knows the answer to. It's almost as if he was showing people exactly that he had turned the page of just being a prophet. He was not just a spiritual person, but he really was this God, the Son of God, this Messiah that everything had been pointing to. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. When the woman knowingly what had happened to her, she fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told the whole truth, and she said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So she was afraid. And I think it's interesting that whenever we come to Jesus, that we sometimes think we have to be, we have to clean ourselves up. We, that we have to approach God. And in other words, I've heard this, this narrative many times. I'm not ready to go back to church. I'm not ready to talk to Jesus. I'm not ready to start that relationship with who God is because I'm not good enough. Or maybe I don't fit the mold, but the fact is Jesus was there and, and met her where she was. All she had to do was reach out to him. I think it's interesting also that you see that Mark sarcastically reference the idea of like, you know what the disciples were doing so you can see how there is difference between Luke's account of this and how Mark is different. It is interesting that the disciples were real people and they told jokes and they were literally almost giving Jesus a hard time. Like, you know exactly who did this. These were normal people. Sometimes we make the 12 disciples to be something that they're not. The fact is they were totally normal people. See, Jesus had authority over sickness. And that kind of brings us to the whole problem of pain and what to do with that because the fact is a lot of times Jesus doesn't heal people that are sick. And sometimes Jesus does, and that is the most amazing thing. And so we, we are seeing this example that he is 100% capable of doing that. 
And so we have to wrestle with the very fact that, that sometimes there is a bigger thing at play and that we have to learn our position that we're gonna look at in just a little bit. Knowing that God is all of those things, yet he still makes decisions. He's still a sovereign, doing exactly what his purposes are. Jesus was this person. He had authority over sickness. And then the last story that really is part of the same sect, we're about to read about Jairus and how it jumps back into this, but this is what I want you to see. If you were Jairus, how would you feel? You just saw all of these things happen. You know that, that, that his daughter was very sick and that she was struggling through you know, just a few minutes of her life that were left. How would you feel if you were Jairus in this situation? Let's read. There's verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came to the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother, bother with the teaching anymore? Overhearing that, what she said, Jesus told him, do not be afraid, just believe. At this point, Jairus, I'm sure, is a little bit upset. That the whole fiasco with the girl reaching out and touching the cloak, it had wasted precious time as, as, as what he probably thought. And there's some validity to that. And I think that sometimes we're going to see that the way that God operates is not in our timetable. Our timeline of what we want if we, just, if we could go around this room, we would see that there's different personalities. Each one of us has. I have a wife that is wonderful, but she wants to know a plan, and she wants to know a schedule, and she's probably going to work through that. And for me, I see things differently. I see it all like, what are we going to do today? Just imagine all the possibilities we could do. And for her, things are much more structured. Jerry is here, knew one thing, that his little girl... His 12-year-old daughter had just a few minutes left to live, and this one person that he thought could heal her got caught up in some little healing. And we're going to see what happens and how Jesus changed that narrative of our timeline and how we saw the, th- the way things should happen. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James, come with them. When, when they came into the ha- of the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. When he went in, he said to them, "Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep." They laughed at him. Interesting enough, how you would in this day would be very custom to have. Um, these people that you would pay and that would volunteer to be mourners. And we don't understand that in our culture at all, but that's just the way that it was in this time. This, that's obviously not those people because they would think that's extremely insensitive. This was such a new and fresh situation. Those people hadn't even shown up yet. This was friends and fr- family. And here they are trying to make sense of this whole thing about this girl this girl that had just died. After he put them, put them all out, he took the, the child's father and mother and disciples who were with, they were with him and said to, when the, the, I'm trying that again. And the disciples were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to him, Talitha Kuhn, took me forever to figure out how to say that, Talitha Kuhn, it's not Disney, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up. 
and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And they gave strict orders not to let anybody know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So not only did Jesus show up, heal this girl, raise her from the dead, put her back to, to, to the state of actually living, didn't tell people not to talk about it, but then to get her some sort of a sandwich. You could see how there was a, 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 a timetable that just doesn't make sense to us. Jesus comes on his terms when he wants to and is not confined to the same time and space continuum that we are. And I think a lot of times when we are praying through something or wanting God to deliver us from a situation, we have our preconceived timelines and how God should move in this situation or what we should pray for. And yet God was still 100% over it, in control, owning it. Talakahum is an Aramaic phrase. So Jesus, that's why they, were, they had to explain what it actually meant because it wasn't in Greek. And this, this phrase literally means all in once, it says, arise, my little lamb. And you can see that there's obviously some kind of little phrase that, that, that you would give someone at that day but the idea that Jesus had this sympathy and that he was, he was caring and he saw the pain of a, of a dad with a 12-year-old and just trying to work through that, you saw a side of him that sometimes we don't see, the very fact that he saw the sensitivity telling this girl and calling her a little lamb. When we think of Jesus, if I was, I was just to ask you if you would just picture who Jesus and what he looks like, well, you'd get all kinds of things in this room. You would get something like the fact that he, he's obviously authoritative, but you also get other people that would say that maybe he is very kind and gentle. And for some of us, he might even be a little passive, a little introverted. The fact is, is that when he showed up on the situation, he knew exactly what to do in that situation. See, because he had authority over death. The fourth thing is that Jesus obviously had authority over death. So let's look at some of the things we have in common through all these stories, right? There was a natural disaster that nobody could manage, and there was a demon nobody could restrain, and there was a disease that nobody could cure. There was a dead girl and what can really be done with that? She's dead. So this story really does put all of this together for us, and we start to see that Jesus is there, that Jesus does have authority over nature. He has authority over the spiritual world. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over death. I was very encouraged. I've been studying this passage for two weeks and just looking at about how Jesus, whenever he's there, he had a way with people. And he drew people to himself. And throughout history, over generation after generation after generation, you would think that this idea of following Jesus would fizzle out, but it hasn't. Why is that? 
probably for many reasons, but the reality is, is because his spirit really is living on. And that he continues to do the same thing, that people are continuing to be drawn to him. Let's go back to the first scene now. Let's go back to when Jesus was asleep on the mat. Because I think the main idea of this whole passage right here is found really there. What does he say? It says, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus was asleep on a mat. And I don't know what that mat would look like. I don't know, if be th- I, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm like focusing on that, but it, it would be thick mat or thin mat, but he's there, he's asleep on it. And you see Jesus trying to work through. He's asleep and he's trying to teach these people and all they come up and say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? See, I think that that is the crux of what's going on here because this really was about putting his character in question. In other words, do you even really care? Does it even really matter to you that we're about to die and you're asleep? See, that's different than a faith, than dealing with the faith issue on his timing or his presence. But this really was the very thing, is God good? Does he care? And I think through, through even through the history of, of the culture that we live in now that looks much different, that is the question most people are asking. Is God good? Does he care? And so after those stories, you can see that Jesus is walking us through the very fact that how he dealt with them, not only does he care, he does care, but also that he's present and he's with us and he had a way about him that that was unlike anybody else. I think these these four things that can be seen as similarities. With one word, Jesus stops the storm dead in its track. With one word, Jesus drives out the army of demons and thus ultimately destroying the demons. Without even knowing it, Jesus healed a woman's incurable disease And with a gentle touch, Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. Complete authority. He had the ability to come in and manage unlike anyone else. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, there's a couple things that I want us to see here. When we start to actually navigate through this, this is, this is a story about Jesus' authority and power. He knows, he knows that he has it. He is showing his people, his normal people, some of them even uneducated, his character and his goodness, his authority in all situations. The fact that we can learn, even today, that his character can be trusted. Jesus was building evidence that he was this God, that he was this Messiah. In college, I I had to pick like a side to, I got biblical studies degree, but I had to pick, and so I I focused on the Old Testament. And I didn't realize this whenever I, I would be in all of these Old Testament classes, but the one thing that I saw continually is that the professor was very emphatic about this very statement, that Jesus is not under every single rock in the Old Testament. He's not under every single story, so don't be looking for him there. Sometimes it's just about the history that happened. 
And I think it's also very imperative that there was hundreds of years before Jesus leading up to him actually showing up on the scene of silence. There was no prophetic voice. There was no one there. When Jesus walked on this stage, it was the perfect time. Almost like he had planned it that way. Culturally, it was the perfect time. Socioeconomically, it was perfect. The fact that there was roads and he could get around, it all made sense. But the fact was, is that when he did show up, he dealt with common people, with common needs. And each one of us, I think, could find this. I think the, the building this evidence on who God is, is found in a couple things, is that when we understand that he is 100%, who he says he is, there's a posture that takes place. There's a posture that has to happen. So this, this position, this posture, is literally the first thing you would have to do is, is that you would have to be submission. We live in a culture that we don't like submission. We don't like the idea of anyone telling us what to do. If you do something that you would even say is mildly controversial, put it on Facebook and see what happens, and you'll have 100 people coming in, telling you how you did this wrong, that was wrong, you know, don't tell, you know like, this is what we do is, in, in parenting, just put something out there, there's always someone that has the opposite side. No one wants to be told what to do. Here we see Jesus show up, and after you see what happened, there's submission. There's a comfort that comes underneath his presence. And so we can try to navigate through the scripture without that, but if we don't get to a place where we submit to, you know what, this God is who he said he was, that we can't even move to the next thing is where we have faith, we have a belief system, that we can know who God is. We have faith that he is there even though he's not evidently seen. We can see the effects of God, but we can't ultimately see him like these disciples did. Ironically, the disciples, they saw Jesus and they still wrestled with the faith thing. And that last stage, stage is trust, trust overall. So when you learn to trust overall in every single aspect of your life, through the good times, because this is what happens, ultimately I find myself saying this, that was me, I did that. I accomplished that at work. That was my achievement in school. I find that when we have complete trust in the good times and giving that back to who God is and his character, it's easy to run to God when things are falling apart. It's easy to run to God when there's, when there's sickness, there's death. It's difficult in the seasons of life. Throughout the Old Testament, there was these cycles that happened right, with the people of God where they would, they would turn to God and they would be with God and then they would slowly start to move away from God and they would worship other idols and then there would be a whole period where they would turn their back completely on God and then usually God did something to change that narrative and then they would come back to God and then they would start the whole cycle over again. Isn't it ironic that people today almost have the same exact need, that we all find ourselves in these cycles of faith of knowing, learning to trust God. But through that, God makes us stronger. Through that, God makes us learn to trust him. So this position, this posture, leads to, to faith, leads to trust. 
Now, I believe this happens individually and collectively as a body of believers. It isn't just happening where God is dealing with you individually. I also believe as, as a church, capital C and lowercase c, that there is something going on whenever we learn this right here. When I say uppercase C, church, I mean that the kingdom of God, all churches combined. Lowercase C, that would be journey. I think there's things that we can learn through that. Our, our posture individually has to be answered. In other words, what is God trying to teach us through this? I think the most ultimate question is, is, is have you given all authority over, over to God in your own life? Is there pockets of, of, of your own self that has not completely surrendered? I tell students this all the time. It's almost like there's a, there's a house and God wants to open up every single door and be Lord over every single room in the house. But a lot of times we find ourselves closing off this closet or shutting this back bedroom and we have that. Have you given God all authority over your life? Or you want to control your life? Have you surrendered yourself to him? And what areas of your life are you, are you still controlling rather than giving that to Christ? Are you holding on with a clenched fist? I find myself in this same boat many times. I will, I will reach out to you, but I'm still not there. Jesus came to cut through that. My junior year in college, no, actually, yeah, junior year of high school, God called me to ministry. I wrote this quote in a Bible that I wish I still had, but I've lost it. This was written 70 years ago from C.S. Lewis. I think it just encapsulates that whole thing. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out, hand it over to me. The whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, your wishes and dreams, turn them over to me. Give them, give them to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange and I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. That's, that was the, the words when I was looking for the words as a high school student. That's what I prayed. I'd say, God, wherever you want me to go, I, I, I want to put that before you. So this submission, this understanding who God is, also I think has some implications for our church collectively. Colossians 1.18 says, says that he also is the, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have place, first place in everything. So as a church of believer, we come and know this surrender, that we know who God is. I think that it, it, it's very imperative that we, I'm just gonna give you four pillars of what we want journey to be. And uh, for some of us, this is gonna be, this is gonna be, you know, you already know these things, but I just want you to hear my heart that this is the things that we can go and say, this is where we want to latch ourselves onto. The first thing is, is that we wanna be a people of the word. 
collectively in here, in groups. We want the word of God to be the thing that navigates us through life. It's super important to read other devotionals, all those, you know, all those things that we put sometimes, but a lot of times we just do a book and we don't really deal with scripture. We want God's word to be the thing that guides us. It's, that's, that's the thing that has authoritative direction for our church. We want to be people marked by love for our community, for our community. We've got to get outside of these walls. We've got to send people to our communities and be embedded with them that, we, that they know we love them and they, they can come here and be a part. A lot of times the church becomes four walls and no one can get in and no one can get out. The fact is we have to create a church with doors for people to come in. We've got to get into the communities. We've got to be a part to see where God is. We gotta be a people raised up and sent out for the gospel. I think I worded it different. When they're raised up, that means if you, if you have a, a passion in this room, there's no better time now than now to take that passion and use it. Raise us up in ministry here at Journey but then also sent out to do things beyond these walls. Mobilization, we're gonna go places, we're gonna go on mission trips, but also we want to be able to take this gospel through our partners that we have outside of these walls. And the last thing is we've got to become a people of prayer. And that is the most Sunday school answer you'll ever hear, VBS 1992. The fact is, is that that is said, but it is, it is the thing that is gonna shape us, the thing that is gonna direct us is if we really truly learn to be a people of prayer. Making God a part of our daily lives. It's very easy to say that, but when we become people of prayer, there is an instant connection. Our prayer ministry meets on every Sunday morning. It would be amazing to see that thing so jam-packed that we have to move it to something bigger. People of the prayer. As God's people here collectively, we want to see that God is at work and that these pillars are what we're going to attach ourselves to. So we want to be people of the word. We want to be marked by our love for the community. We want to be raised up and sent out and we want to be people of prayer. It's pretty simple. It's really important that we grasp that. Churches, if, if I could ask people, what is church? Why are we here? I'd get many different answers from those that say, this is what you do. I grew up doing that. My parents might me come. But the reality is, is when we see the church is the livelihood and the embodiment of literally Jesus to a culture that doesn't, it's other. They don't even understand. But they're still drawn in. They're still attracted. Why? Because Jesus draws people to himself. So when we are these pillars, God can see us more clearly. God can use us more clearly. So just a few questions. Are you for 
the community? Or do you live, a, or do you live in a really a self-absorbed world? This one was for me. Are you in community? Are you, a, are you a person devoted to studying God's word? Or is what happens here enough? The reality is the average Christian spends less than a day in prayer and less than three minutes a week in God's word. It's kind of rough. Are you ready to actively follow Christ, grow in Christ, and be sent out? Not only to Jonesboro, but to our neighborhood, to our job, and across the world. I don't know where God would have you, but I do know this. He uses normal people when we submit and get under his authority. What act of obedience is God calling you to? These aren't normal journey questions we ask, but I feel like they're relevant God is calling us all to do so much more. Our prayer is that this body would be attached to not only the community, but to his word and seeing his purposes come to be because he uses normal people. He interacts with normal people and you can be a part of that as well. Let's pray. God, I pray that we can be a people on mission. God, that our faith is not just a box that we check. But God, when we see you, you change the atmosphere. So Jesus, this morning, we, we confess that we see the way you interacted with your people and that you have all authority. You have the ability to change every situation. God, this morning we get under that authority and we trust in you and we look to you. God, I pray that our lives that we live would matter because they're rooted in you. God, as we walk with you, as we know you, as we grow in you, I pray that we would also reflect what these passages today says, that this God shows up and changes everything. He changed my life. I pray this morning the same would be for you. This morning, if you're struggling in your own faith, I just want you to know that we would love to talk after the service. Don't know where you fit into this whole big picture. Maybe doubted the existence of who God is or that he was who he said he was. We'd love to talk. To know that there's a savior that he came here, lived a perfect life, died on a cross specifically for you and for for me. And while we haven't lived a perfect life, he did, so he bridged that gap. 
This morning, I pray that we would come to Christ, maybe for the first time, but for those, we would also identify that that bridge is the key to everything and knowing you, that you change everything. God, we love you this morning. In your name we pray, amen.